0: story told of Mullah Nasruddin, again the Sufi fool and wise man, all rolled in one. He was out in his garden one day, sprinkling breadcrumbs around his house and the flowers. And A friend came by and saw him and said, Mullah, why are you doing that? What are you doing? And he said, Oh, I do this to keep the tigers away. And his friend said, But there are no tigers within thousands of miles of here. And he replied, Effective, isn't it?
1: <laughs> okay.
0: In some ways, we can get into a rhythm of meditation practice or an undertaking of a particular approach or technique and do it in that way, kind of rote, sprinkling the crumbs or doing the rising falling or the in and out um, as if somehow by doing it enough it will keep the tigers at bay. And in fact as you've probably noticed already in just three days of the retreat, the tigers come anyway. And there are all kinds of things which arise no matter how diligently you watch your breath. this headline in the newspaper is Wednesday, April 3rd, the day the retreat began. Both the San Francisco Examiner and Chronicle had pretty much the same headline. It says, Guru Hit by Sex Slave Suit. I think they like the idea of sex slave somehow or something. I've seen that in other headlines. In this particular case, it's, it's uh, there are many gurus who had this uh, kind of publicity. This is Da Free John and I think a lot of it in fact is made up or uh, much more incendiary than in fact the events prove, will prove to be. But um, sprinkling crumbs or watching your breath or doing anything in a rote way in practice doesn't prepare one for the energies, both of the world outside, whether it's praise and blame and slander, or for the inner ones of fear or anger or sexuality or desire and so forth. Someone asked Ramakrishna, the great Indian saint, why is there evil in the world? And he replied, to thicken the plot, (laughs) somehow to make it actually more interesting for us. So I'd like to speak this evening about some of the things that, in fact, thicken the plot of meditation. Not necessarily sex slaves, unless Jamie's been doing something uh, (laughs) unaccounted for. What you find when you come and start to meditate paying attention to the breath and the sensations of the body and paying attention to the mind is that the ref- the retreat is much like looking in a the mirror. There's not much distraction. We sit down and we're silent, and what you get then is what's there, which is certain sensations which are arising and the kind of thoughts and images and feelings and desires and the problems which arise in meditation are much the same for all of us. Um, They're described by the Christian Desert Fathers as demons, the demons of pride or sleepiness or anger. They all, as they arise for us, they all really require us to make our practice somehow, to make our practice confront or engage or incorporate the very things which are the difficulties in our life. And they ask a fundamental question of us, which is, is it possible not to be trapped by our own mind, by our own fears, by our own desires, by our own prejudices? In his teaching, the Buddha spoke in a systematic way of the kind of difficulties which arise for people in meditation practice or in life. And he called the most frequent of them the five hindrances, or the five difficult energies, or the five seductive energies. And depending on how we learn to relate to them, our practice can either be a greatly confused struggle, or if we can relate to them properly, they can become a source of understanding, of wisdom, of greater compassion and kindness from our heart, and really make our practice work for us in the domains of our life where these come. How to work with the difficulties that come in practice. I know very few of you have had them over these days, but for those of you who can relate to them, you can listen to this. The first thing that's essential is simply to identify them to be able to see clearly what one's experience is. And so these five, and you may have your own particular flavors or other ones which you can add to the list. These five common ones, the first is sense desire. Desire for pleasant sights or sounds or pleasant sensations or pleasant thoughts. Now what's wrong with sense desire? What's the problem with it? Anybody got an idea? it seems like it's just fun. One of the problems, so it says here anyway, (laughs) one of the problems if you observe what it's like to experience the desiring mind, is that it always keeps you out of the present. It's always looking for something that hasn't come yet. It keeps the mind external, looking for happiness in some particular sense, in a taste, or a touch, or a smell, or a physical sensation, all of which can be pleasant, but which have a particular drawback, and that is that they never last. And so the kind of completion or wholeness that we seek can't really come through those outer things. It's also a problem because it's rarely satisfied. That is to say you get it, and you have it, and it doesn't last, and you have to go and look for the next one. And Many people in this culture spend their lives seeing how fast they can put them together. If you can have a a good movie, and nice wine, and a, a, a pleasant drive, and watch the sunset, and go do this, and good sex, and then follow that by a good night's sleep if you're lucky, and then whatever, and get them fast enough together, then it will all be okay. But you get kind of tired after a while trying to do that. They don't really bring a sense of completion or a sense of wholeness of the heart. It's like seeking satisfaction of, of one kind where the other kind cannot be completed. And you come into a retreat and at first there may be those outer kinds of desires. Gee, I wish I'd brought some wonderful food to snack on or when I leave I'll go out for pizza or. Thai food or whatever your favorite thing is or something. You can imagine what you'll do when you go. Later on, after a few days you get here, it's a little bit more like being, I don't know, in prison camp or something like that. <laughs> and your desires become much smaller. It's like the only thing that there is for you, for example, is lunch. So you say, <laughs> well, what will they serve today? You know, or tea time. It's not asking much really from life. Or know that the weather be pleasant or so f- and so forth or some people there's a phenomena described as the vipassana romance you know you're practicing in a very diligent way walking slowly sitting not looking around but somehow you notice <laughs> not on purpose some person who's kind of interesting there and you not look at them or anything and you sit and close your eyes and you imagine what it would be like to speak with them perhaps at the end of the retreat to meet them maybe to go off and meditate together. And then the mind goes further. And, you know, after a while, there's courtship, marriage, children maybe, divorce if it's California. And all this without ever having made eye contact with this person. So this is the power of the wanting mind or the mind of desire, to create fantasy, to look all the time into something that's not here yet. It's called the if-only mind. The mind that says, and this is really where it's most painful, and to understand it is a hindrance. You sit and you say, if only I had brought a bench instead of these cushions, or only I had brought lighter clothing, it's too hot. Or if only I hadn't waited and maybe done the retreat in the summer, I I really needed to do some other things, or this isn't the right time. Or if only they had a little more movement, or maybe some music, to." Maybe if only I did a Sufi practice instead of this very dull kind of <laughs> watching the breath and walking or if only I don't know if only the sittings were shorter or if only the sittings were longer or they had lomi movement in the afternoon as well and then we do it in our life if if only I could get the right job then my life would be happy and I'd be satisfied or if only I could find just the right place to live, the right situation with the right people, or if only I could find the right mate, you know, your soul mate who's out there waiting for you to be met, this fantasy, our culture, and then I'd find that and I wouldn't be lonely anymore and I'd be really happy. And this if only mind, what it does is it keeps us looking for something rather than being with what is actually true in our life. So we miss our life waiting for something else that, in fact, is never there. Because if you keep wishing, you get to the next moment, you wish for something else. Now the second kind of hindrance which comes, difficulty which arises, is the opposite of that. And that's aversion. Instead of wanting and desire, it's dislike. It's ill will, irritation, judgment, condemnation. And the thing that's good about aversion compared to desire, at least is that it's obviously painful. Desire comes and taps you on the shoulder and says, if you come with me and we get this we'll be really pretty happy, at least for a while. When there's irritation or judgment or ill will it hurts right away. You can see it very clearly. And we have an amazing capacity to judge almost anything, to get angry at things that have happened long ago in which no one can do anything about whatsoever. Or even to imagine something that someone might do, and then sit here and get angry about it. It's never even happened yet. And there are other aspects to this anger. Boredom sometimes can be a kind of aversion. It's boring, I don't like what I'm experiencing, I want something else. Or fear is a kind of aversion. I'm afraid to feel it, I'm afraid to open to it. And there is, just like there's a Vipassana romance, for some people, there's something called the Vipassana Vendetta. There's somebody in the room that bugs you. you know, they breathe too loud. They swallow too loud. They come in late. They wear the wrong thing. They do something wrong, and they're always around you if you see them. And they're making you suffer. And it's their fault. So we project all of our pain onto that person. The opposite of projecting her desire. The third of the common hindrances is called sloth and torpor. Sleepiness, dullness, laziness, uh, lack of energy, spaced out. It's what Evagrius, in the Christian desert text, called the noonday demon. And the noonday demon appears most frequently in the afternoon sittings. You can watch it. Did you ever see those little Plastic things that you buy, you put by a glass and it will dip its beak in and then straighten up again. And there'll be about ten people in each side of the room kind of (laughs) during the two o'clock sitting. So that again, it's another kind of difficulty which arises for us. Then there are two more categories, common ones. The next one is restlessness and worry. Restlessness, agitated, anxious feel pain or loneliness or whatever it is and get very upset uh, or inner kind of commotion, distractions, and then we try to distract ourselves. Well, I'll just go for a walk or uh, um, whatever to get away from this difficulty of agitated or restless mind. The last of the five common hindrances in some ways is the most difficult of all. And this is doubt comparing oneself or judging oneself, or the practice, or one's readiness, or the teachers. Because when it comes and you believe it, everything comes to a halt, really comes to a stop. It's too hard, I can't do it. Or maybe I should do, um, I should just do weekends first. Ten days is too long. Or um, I should do my practice uh, or retreat like this, but maybe next year after I've had some more preparation time. It's not the right time. Or again, as I said with desire, maybe it's not the right practice for me. I should do one that's more joyful or one that's more uh, social or one that's uh, got music to it or whatever your fantasy is. This isn't the right practice. Or or the teachers, I mean, okay, but they're these young guys from America. It's not like some Tibetan Lama or some Hindu Swami or something like that. Um, What do they know? anyway? So doubt in teachers or the practice or oneself. and You can get very discouraged at times. There was a, a well-known a teacher and therapist who came to one retreat. and She came to an interview about the fourth day and she said it was so hard, because she thought she was really a pretty good meditator, but she'd never tried to sit for 10 days. She'd sat for like 15-20 minutes at home. She said she was sitting in one hour. She noticed that instead of noting rising and falling, it had turned into Rising, failing, rising, failing. (laughs) It's it's difficult. So perhaps these are familiar energies to you in your practice. Some people will experience them one at a time. Others have what's called a multiple hindrance attack. And you can have (laughs) a sitting where many of them come in in the same basic uh, time frame. They all make it impossible to see clearly, especially if we don't know how to relate to them. And the image the Buddha used to describe them uh, was of a clear pond. Desire is like beautiful colored dyes in the water, kind of temptation that uh, swirls through the water but makes it difficult to see clearly to the bottom. And anger is like the pond being on a uh, hot springs, boiling steam. Uh, Sloth and torpor, dullness or sleepiness, is like an algae-covered pond. Restlessness is a wind-swept pond. And doubt is like mud stirred up from the bottom. Each one of these, when they come as an experience in our meditation, make it difficult to see clearly. Now, if we can learn to work with this energy, it will free up our meditation. If we can learn to use it in some way, it can be a source of real aliveness for our practice. So we're not just sprinkling crumbs. And it can also be a source of learning a great deal about compassion, loving kindness toward ourselves, and a kind of mercy for us and for all the rest of the world around. So how to work with them, and how to work with the other kinds of moods and emotions that arise for us. The first thing that's important is not to suppress them. Because if you suppress them, what happens? First of all, it kind of cuts off your energy and it will deaden you. Second of all, if you've noticed when you suppress stuff, what happens? It comes up later someplace else because it's attached to you. It's a part of you. And So even if you put it away, you'll find it there in some other form later. So you don't want to suppress it. Now what else don't you want to do? I don't think you want to necessarily act it all out. Do you know what would happen? if you acted out everything that came through your mind, they would lock you up. (laughs) If you look, probably. Most people, anyway, if you really look in there. So you don't want to necessarily act on every desire and every thought and every aversion and every anger and all of that and get in trouble. Okay. So then, how can we deal with them? There's a story from the community run by George Gurdjieff that illustrates the beginning of approach to take with this kind of energy. There was an old man who lived in the community in Fontainebleau outside of Paris, many people practicing together, and he was really obnoxious. He was dirty and very angry and irritable, and he would, he would yell at people and get upset at all kinds of things, and was very um, obnoxious, kind of unpleasant character, cantankerous. He was also messy, never cleaned up after himself, and bathed enough, and all that. Just the kind of person you don't want in your community. And he had so many run-ins with the other people, finally one day even he got frustrated. and He gave up in disgust and ran away to Paris. When Gurdjieff ha- found this out, he drove to Paris and found the man in the Russian refugee section and sat down and asked him to please come back. And the man said, no, I've had enough. It's too difficult. After a lot of cajoling. Still no response, Gurdjieff said, all right, I'll pay you. And he gave him a lot of money at that time, some many hundreds francs a month to come back. And The man said, well, for that, how can I refuse? Since everyone else in the community had to pay a lot. But Gurdjieff's way is that you had to really give up everything for your practice. And he asked a great deal of money from people. So this man comes back, and the people in the community are so disheartened when they see him arrive again. There he is again. We just got rid of him. And then they hear that he's being paid. You know, They're paying and he's being paid. And they're all whispering and talking. Very upset about it. And Gurjeev calls a meeting together. And he says, I know what you've been talking about. What's your question? And they say, well, why? And he said, because this man is like yeast for bread. Without him in the community, you really wouldn't have an opportunity to learn about patience and compassion and loving kindness. And your own frustration and irritation. He's the person here who will really teach you a lot. And so I paid him to come while you have to pay me. And the story really gives a a spirit of the way in which one can approach these kind of difficult energies which arise in practice. The way to deal with it is neither to suppress it nor to necessarily act on it but instead to begin to use them in our practice directly for insight, for understanding, and to begin to free that energy up within ourselves. To do that by applying the same principle of mindful or aware, concentrated attention to these very states when they arise. Not to grasp them, not to push them away or avoid them, and not to identify not even to make such a big deal of them. Simply to begin to observe how our moods and our mental energies come and go the same way that the weather changes. And to really examine them with a balance of awareness. And out of that can come some very deep understandings. See how things, in fact, come and go of themselves, that they're basically selfless and empty. And a great deal of insight can come through the observation of them. Not only can insight arise, But also, as I've said, it becomes possible then to learn a much softer and kinder way of dealing with these things in ourselves and with them as we encounter them in the world outside. The second way of dealing with them, in addition to making them a mindful part of the meditation, which is the most fruitful, is that sometimes when they're very strong, there are kind of counterbalances, remedies one can use to help ease the intensity so that one can then be aware of them more easily. Let's go through them again and talk about them as one would work in practice. Sense desire comes. You really want something. What to do when the wanting arises? Sitting here paying attention to the rising and falling or the in and out breath. When the wanting arises, and it's strong, that is strong that comes into your notice, leave the breath aside and put all your attention being aware of the wanting mind. Feel it physically in the body. What is wanting like? I mean, It runs most of our country. Look at a magazine or turn on the television. It says, have this, get this, buy this, it will make you happy. It's a very powerful force. Desire, wanting, hunger. So you sit there and the wanting mind comes and you note wanting or desiring and you really look at it very directly. What does it feel like in the body? Is there tension with it? Is it hot? Is it cool? Is there constriction? Is there openness? What's the quality of the wanting in the physical body? Then you look at it as its mental state. What's the mind like which is wanting? It's not a very easy thing to do, but it's a terribly important one. Because these kind of energies, of desire, of fear, of anger, are what run a lot of the world. And it's very important for us to begin to come to terms with them in our own lives and for the sake of the people around us. Oscar Wilde said at one point, I can resist anything except temptation. Okay? And so for us too, desire. Our habit is to be identified with it. Wanting comes and we say, yes, I want. So this will be a whole new way of relation which simply says, wanting, wanting, and looks at it and feels it quite directly. And when you do, what happens? If you really let yourself look at it and notice it and pay attention, what do you think will happen to it? Sooner or later, it will pass. Because everything passes. And you'll start to see that it, too, has the same nature as anything else. It's like night and day and your own breath and the cycles of every other aspect of life. It arises for a little while, it's there, and it passes. And you start to learn that you need not be as trapped by it. You need not believe it as fully as you thought you had to. So then the heart and the mind can come to a place of some rest or some balance. Now, what can you do when it's very, very strong? and you know wanting, wanting, and it's still, you can't even be mindful of it, it's so powerful. The antidote for it is a reflection on either renunciation or impermanence. You can reflect on what would be like if you got it, there you got it, that wonderful thing, and then what happens? You have it for a little while and it's done. You, you felt it, or you tasted it, or you saw it, or something, okay. Ah, there you had it, and then what? Or you can reflect in some other way on its opposite. in the monasteries, particularly their teachings, if you have a lot of craving for food, um, then they'll have you reflect on what happens to the food after you eat it and digest it and so forth. It really let you look at the whole food chain from beginning to end. Or if you have um, kind of compulsive sexuality, then there's a whole series of reflections rather than on the beauty and desirability of the body, on the things that are undesirable about it. and It starts by reflecting on the things that come out of all of the orifices of the body. and Then it kind of goes on from there. It's not to say that you need to do that meditation, but those are kind of antidotes to the power of wanting or desire. A more sensible way is to be moderate. Moderate in your eating, moderate in your sleeping. It's a very difficult thing to learn moderation. Some people would rather fast, because it's easier actually, than to learn to eat in an appropriate amount. But the eating meditation is a fa- powerful place to learn about hunger and desire, and to learn when you're full, when your belly says you're full, when your eyes say, oh, let's have a little more, and your tongue said, yeah, that tastes good. And you hear these different voices. You can begin to learn about the power of desire, and wanting, and what it's like in yourself. Now what to do when anger arises? It's pretty much the same story. It's a very powerful energy, as is desire. And what's required of us, if we want to make our practice really useful in our lives, is to come to terms with irritation, with anger, with uh, judgment. So anger arises. And you sit and you make a note, angry, angry or irritated, first you feel it in the body. You actually just let yourself experience the heat of it, the tightness, the movement, the vibration. Really let yourself sit and feel it as fully as you're able. Then pay attention to it in the mind. See what the quality is. Does the mind seem smaller or constricted or agitated with it? What is it like when you're angry? Just look at it. Pay attention and see both within the wanting mind and the angry mind, the two opposites. See if there's a strong sense of attachment with it. I want it to be this way with the anger as well, or frustration, and what that feels like for you. Don't judge it or try and make it go away. It's powerful and important. See if you can learn from it. So that's the way to begin to work with anger. It will require a spaciousness. It will require a kind of softness to be able to do it. You have to be kind of gentle with it. And it will take quite a bit of practice, I think you'll find. Now how to work with the associated states of boredom or fear. The same way, if boredom arises, try to let yourself just be bored. Be very bored. Sit here and be completely bored and feel what boredom is like. Normally, boredom runs our life in part. We get a little bored, so we open the refrigerator or read something or, or uh, turn on the TV or call somebody on the phone or do something to distract ourselves. But this time, if you get bored, fine. Sit here and be real bored and just see what it's like. And what you'll discover is boredom is actually kind of a subtle form of aversion of not liking what's here. And if you can feel that aversion and then sense, all right, what's actually here? You can start to come more truthfully into the moment. And also you learn to live in a way that's not governed by boredom. You discover a kind of freedom from that state. Same with fear. What do you do when fear arises? As you sit and meditation gets somewhat deeper, Fear will come inevitably. The breath will get very soft, and some people have already said in interviews, it's like the breath is stopping and I get afraid. I'm afraid I won't breathe anymore. Or, you know, they're afraid they'll die of meditating or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Or fear comes all, it gets very quiet. Wait a second, it's mighty quiet in here. What's going to come next? You know, all kinds of sources of fear, or physical pain or memories or so forth. How do you work with fear? Again, it really means to learn to make friends with it. You sit here and fear arises, and you note fear, fear, and you feel it, and there's trembling, and there's tension, and you note tension, tension, then you go back because the fear is stronger than the tension, and you note fear, fear again. And maybe you just get afraid for a while, and then it passes. And you do it again and again, and as Jamie said the other night, perhaps after 10 times or perhaps after 10 retreats and 400 times of fear arising, there will come a time when you're sitting and fear will arise and you'll note fear, fear, and there'll be this quality. Oh, it's fear again. Hi. And it's just like it becomes a familiar old friend. It's a mental state that doesn't take you away. You don't get swept up by it. You simply see it as it is, as another change of the weather in the mind. One of the other things to note about anger, a few things more to say about it. Usually the things that people do that make us angry come out of their own pain. And Very often a more more fruitful response would be to have compassion first for ourselves, because we get angry when? We get angry when we're in pain. And people do things that are hurtful very often when they're in pain. And so to have some mercy, some kindness, a little bit of compassion ourselves and for other people can be a much more fruitful response. There's a story of a Chinese man who was considered very um, fortunate in his village. He had a beautiful wife and son and a daughter and a, um, a, a beautiful horse which he used to plow his fields and plow the fields of his neighbors and draw the carriage. So he was quite prosperous. And one day his horse ran away And everyone said, oh this poor man, he's so unfortunate. And he said, well maybe. He didn't know. It was sad, the horse ran away. And a week later, the horse came back by itself and it brought with it a wild stallion. So now the man was very fortunate. He had two horses, really rich. Everyone said, see how fortunate it is and what a wonderful life this man has. And he said, well maybe and so his son was out there training this horse trying to break it in so they could use it to plow and draw the carriage and since it was a wild stallion it threw him and broke his leg very badly and everyone said oh such misfortune his only son so precious and he's broken his leg and they said he's such an unfortunate man he said well maybe And then a little while later while the son is still healing the Emperor sent his troops through town to recruit young men for the army, for the war against the barbarians. You know, they're always fighting the war against the barbarians. We're still doing it. okay? And so they take all the young men to go fight the barbarians except for, of course, this one young man who's not quite healed yet. So they say, see how fortunate it is that he's the only one whose son is still left here. And he says, well, maybe. And the story goes on from there. But very often the things that we feel, we get angry about and say, this is the thing that's..." that's terrible and made my life so bad, two months or six months or a year later, all of a sudden you realize that in some way that was a gift to you, or there was some very important thing to learn out of it. If nothing else, maybe to learn how to be kinder, or more loving, or more deeply uh, open to the suffering in the world around you or something. So we tend to get angry about things from a very small position or point of view. In order to understand anger, it's not to say that you should suppress it or that it's bad. What's required is to pay attention and to really begin to learn about it as a force in our lives and in our hearts and our minds. Now the antidote, as I said, is compassion or loving kindness. And if you're very angry, sometimes you can reflect on the thing that brings the most sense of love in your life. That person or what experiences do that. And that often will soften the heart a little bit. And then the... The thing that made you angry may come in and you may see it in a little different way. Be able to be more mindful. Sloth and torpor, sleepiness. What to do when that arises in meditation? The same thing. Sit here and pay attention and watch it. It comes in like a little fog, like tendrils of fog in San Francisco over the hill. You know, sneaks in the window in the afternoon. And first as you sit, you'll feel just this kind of pleasant sort of warmth maybe in the back of your neck or your eyelids will feel even heavier than usual and your sitting will become kind of sweet and a little bit (laughs) drifty and so you start to note if you really want to learn about this energy you note sleepy sleepy and if you do that what what often happens is the power of the awareness it's like Sun on the fog it will dissolve it so you can work with it sometimes you'll find yourself nodding and really very sleepy and still you can kind of probe with your awareness and periodically you note sleepy, sleepy and you sit up straight then you get nodding again and sleepy. Even so it's worth doing because after a while if you watch you'll come to some moments in sitting where you're sleepy and you note sleepy, sleepy and it's very hard to do because you're so sleepy and all of a sudden you note sleepy and maybe it's 20 minutes later it will just vanish and you'll get a sense from that effort to observe it that it is completely impersonal. That it too is like the weather, that each one of our mental states are not I or me or mine. They can't be grasped. They come for a while and they pass. And you can learn a much wiser relationship to it. Now sleep is a difficult one when it's very strong and there are ways to counter it that are quite effective for most people and probably more useful than for the other hindrances. So that if you're quite sleepy and it comes off and you have tried to be mindful, it's still there a lot. Sit up straight. Open your eyes. Make a very delicate mudra if you like. Sometimes I'll make two rings with my fingers and thumbs and then put them interlocking without letting them touch. Just hold them here. And then as I get a little sleepy I'll feel them touch together and sit back up straight. Or stand up and meditate. If you're real sleepy, do part of the sitting standing. Do going back to your breath, rising or falling as you stand. It's harder to fall asleep then, although some people have done it. But it's more difficult. (laughs) Or go for a brisker walk. Or walk backwards in the desert. That will wake you up. (laughs) Or go out at night and walk backwards in the desert. That's what my teacher had me do. I was so sleepy, he said, walk backwards in the forest at night. That will wake you up. And it did. But because I started to get concentrated, and sometimes when you get concentrated a little bit, the sleepiness comes with it, and you really need to raise energy as well. I do that, and I get very aware and concentrated, and I go to sit, and again, I'd be very sleepy. He said, "Fine. For you, it's very simple. Go sit on the edge of the well. You know, sit there and start to meditate and get sleepy and <laughs> nod) 40 feet of space, the adrenaline rush from that kind of fear will wake you right up. You know, so. It's workable. You can work with sleepiness. Stand up, walking more rapidly, walking backward if you really want to kind of play with it a little bit. In the very end, if you're still very sleepy, go take a nap. Mm-hmm. And then resolve that when you wake up, you will wake up from your nap and you will really start to be mindful the minute that you awake. Now the opposite, the opposite of desire and grasping was anger and aversion. The opposite of sleepiness is restlessness. So restlessness comes. What to do when it arises? Again, the same principle. You sit here and you note, restless, restless, and you feel it. What's it like in the body? There's there's a lot of juice and energy. And the practice has a very physical component. There's an aspect of it where the energy channels start to open in the body as you sit here. You don't have to move, or shake, or do anything. In fact, the stiller you sit, the more powerfully can these energy channels open. So you sit, and you just note restless, restless, and you feel the heat, and the vibration, and the tingling. Or you feel it in the mind, there's an agitation. One thought after another, very quickly. Just experience it, okay. Worrying, agitated, restless, restless. And if you do, you can start to discover a wiser, and kinder and more balanced relationship with it. Again, with some practice. Now, what to do if it's really, really strong? If you're just very restless, you just can't stand it. Die. Just sit there and say, okay, take me. Be the first yogi to die of restlessness. Just sit there and say, all right, just surrender to it. And if you do that, that power of surrender is very great. If you let yourself just sit there, what happens? You sit there and you say, okay, take me. Is it in that very letting go, that very surrendering, again you make a bigger space around it in which you can really be aware of just what's there. The antidote to sleepiness is to raise energy through walking, through briskness, through keeping your eyes open, through sitting very still and sitting up quite straight and not slumping. The antidote to restlessness is concentration. Okay? It's a, a calming of the mind. So if sometimes if you're very restless you might even want to sit in a really comfortable way, to sit in a chair. Or even to, especially if it's the time after lunch or something, to experiment with lying down a little bit and meditating. Letting the mind become a little bit calmer. Or concentrating, going back to the breath, perhaps counting the breath, one to ten, as a way to collect or calm yourself. One other thing to to know about the mind as you sit here and watch the various kinds of images and restlessness arise, is that um, all kinds of things will come up not by your choice. And I remember, and I've told the story many times, sitting in a monastery. I'd been away from this country for years, for five years at this point. I was sitting and it was so peaceful. I'd been doing a retreat for a number of months and went through all the hard part and got to the place where it was just spacious and light and the breeze kind of goes right through your body. And I'm sitting there so quietly and all of a sudden I see all these bubbles. And then the bubbles and then I see this white thing that looks kind of like a sink. It's just, you know, how stuff comes into mind. And then the audio portion comes on and it goes, use Ajax, bum bum, the foaming <laughs> cleanser. And I look, you know. Five years not even in this country, no TV, nothing, and I realized that it is all in there. <laughs> Everything. Your the advertisements, your second-grade teacher, um, you know, your first tricycle and what you did with it, and uh, all the kinds of things that come in our senses somehow get registered. And when you sit, the mind has no pride whatsoever, and it just starts <laughs> to kind of regurgitate stuff. And to remember that is very helpful as you sit here. So it's not your job to kind of make it think a certain thing, but it's to come into a wise relationship to the experience. And a sense of humor or a lightness is helpful. What St. Francis de Sales said, he said, what's necessary is a cup of knowledge, a barrel of love, and an ocean of patience. Of just a, a willingness to sit and really watch all the things as they discharge and come to a clearer understanding of them. And so then one comes to the last hindrance of doubt. And the principle is the same. Doubt arises, be mindful of it. I can't do it, it's too hard, it's not the right practice, it's the wrong day. All these voices, doubting, doubting. See what it's like. What is doubt? What is it actually? It's a thought, it's some words which come in the mind And when we believe it, we get caught up in it. But when you note doubt, doubt, it's just a thought. It could say, today is terrible, today is wonderful, the sky is blue, the sky is green. Doubting, doubting, no problem. Now the antidote for doubt, when it's very, very strong, is faith. And that faith can come through intellectual reflection, the fact that this path of awakening of spiritual practice has been done by hundreds of thousands or millions of people and it's been the, the most precious and the most beautiful thing in the egyptian culture and in the indian and in the chinese and the native american and every great culture has had a teaching and a and a an offering to its people of a capacity to awaken to open the heart and discover how to be free in, in this world and to be more loving and kinder with it. And it's difficult, but it's really possible. Many, many people have done it, and you too can do it, even though it's hard. So there can be inspiring reflection, or you can ask questions of people, come up and talk to Jamie or myself if there's a lot of doubt. Know that it's difficult. But at the same time, it's the most wonderful thing to learn how to relate to our life and to this world in a wise and open way. There's another kind of doubt which is actually very valuable. And that is what's called in Zen the great doubt. It's the doubt not just, oh, I can't do it, or it's too hard, or today's too warm, or too cold, or too difficult. But the doubt that says, I want to know, what is this about, or who am I? How did I get into this thing with the wiggly things on the end of it? And a little fur here, and a little fur there, and these very strange shapes. How did this happen? What do I do with it? or How do I relate to it? And so it's the doubt, or what does it mean to be peaceful? Or how can I love, or come to contentment, or, or real joy in my life? And that kind of doubt is very valuable. So it asks a really deep question. Now, I've talked about these five major mental states that come, of desire, of anger, and judgment, and fear, and so forth, of sleepiness, and dullness, and its opposite, restlessness, and of doubt. But there are many other moods and states which arise as well. There can be other difficult ones that you discover, and there can be uh, the opposite ones. There can be mental states of love, or joy, or peacefulness, or contentment or energy uh, or faith or inspiration. All of them are to be treated in the same way. We can begin to make the mental states which arise a part of this process of awareness. So in the instructions tomorrow morning, we're going to move from the breath and body sensations and begin to expand the field of awareness to also be aware of those mental states and moods which arise as we sit taking them as the object. And then what happens is these hindrances become really important and useful in our practice. They become what Suzuki Roshi called mind weeds that you plow under and make the practice fertile, or what Trumpa Rinpoche called manure for bodhi. They're the manure for enlightenment. They're the things that make the practice really useful and juicy for us. And so our sitting in the way of practice here is not to create some peaceful, loving space and suppress everything or run away from it. Which would be nice, but it's temporary. What do you do when you get back on the freeway or when you get back in your family or your work situation? Our practice is really to learn to work with the most primary elements of air, contentment, to really work with it all in a in an alive way. And that's what makes uh, practice, especially for us in the West who aren't going to live in caves or go in monasteries for our lives, makes it really become integrated into our being. And of course it's difficult, and it's kind of a rugged and often deceptive terrain. We get caught up in them a lot of times. But it's these very things that will teach us what it means to, to love or to be kind or teach us in a very powerful way how to be balanced or wise in our practice. It brings juice to it. Beside which, what's the alternative? You know, are you going to cultivate greed and hatred? and kind of? Once you see the possibility of being aware it becomes really a compelling and very important thing in life. The world needs it for sure because it's so much caught up by these energies, by the energy of anger and prejudice and fear and greed, the things that make all the wars, and starvation, hoarding, not sharing. And somebody needs to learn how to relate to these energies wisely. How to neither suppress it, because then it comes up later as nuclear missiles somewhere, nor to get lost and indulge it completely. And that somebody is you. Because if you can learn to do that, you can bring it as a gift To every person you meet, to every circumstance, that kind of understanding, and it becomes really precious. When the eyes and ears are open, the leaves on the trees become like pages in the Bible, says Kabir. And when our awareness opens, we can begin to use every circumstance something to learn from. So I think that's enough for tonight. Rather than take questions this evening, although you may have some, I think I'll do a question period tomorrow morning at the end of the 8 o'clock sitting. For now that feels like a lot of words. So just please continue with your practice, staying mostly with the breath and body sensations. And if you like, you can begin to be aware of the moods as they arise, making a note for them feeling them in the body and the mind, observing how they change from moment to moment, the same way you observe the breath, letting them pass when they do, going back again to the breath. And We'll speak more about it tomorrow morning in greater detail in the instructions. So there's 45 or 55 minutes for walking now, again with the group of what what I'd like to speak about tonight with with you. I'd like to be a little briefer than the last couple of nights. Um, but it's something I think that's quite important in practice. And that is that has to do directly with the topic of this evening's talk of the five hindrances. Um, what I've noticed and in conversation with some of the other teachers, uh, um, with Sharon and Joseph and so forth. Over some of the years of teaching meditation in this country, we've come to emphasize in relationship to the hindrances, um, mostly an acceptance of them. That one should sit and pay attention, and not judge them. And that's come to be so, and so strongly uh, emphasized in that way, because there's such a tendency in our culture to be hard on ourselves, to be judgmental, or to set up an image of perfection. And then when anger, or desire, or judgment, or, or sleepiness arises, to beat ourselves because of it. Or to say our practice isn't good or pure. And so somehow as an antidote to that, we've gone to great lengths to say, don't judge it, be very gentle with it, simply observe it. And that's absolutely correct and very important in beginning to work with it. But there's another step that follows that. Especially as you practice for some longer period of time, and as you're you're sitting and you're walking, things get deeper. And that is that they really are hindrances. They're not simply these difficult and seductive energies, but as they arise, and at first what's necessary is to learn not to condemn them or be afraid of them or to judge them so that you can simply be aware of them as they arise there. Then there's a second step to it that we've emphasized very little. And that is to learn how to release them or to abandon them or to go right through the middle of them so one doesn't keep them playing over and over again. And so one comes to uh, this a certain strength of mind in which even when these arise and you can see them mindfully you can also somehow abandon them or release them. And that's a kind of inner sensibility that you will have to work with and discover in your own practice. The first step, again, which is essential, is to learn to simply observe their energies in the body and the mind and to not judge them, to be able to just sit with them as they are. And once you can do that so that you're not judging them, then you pe- can begin to practice anger arises or desire or fear or doubt or judgment. You note it, there's judgment or there's anger and then you just let it go. Has anybody ever had that experience? Do you know what I'm talking about? To be able to really release it? It's not releasing it out of judgment or aversion, but it's a real abandonment of it. And that's part of the art of meditation and something worth your working with. There's a second way to do it besides abandoning it or releasing it, as I describe, and that is to go through the center of it. When you feel anger, or when you feel desire, or wanting, or when you feel restlessness, or you feel doubt, or you feel judgment, first to note it and experience it on the physical and the mental level. And then see, in this way of working, if you can go right to the very center of it. See if you can find in your physical body and in your mental state where's the very strongest point of that restlessness or the very center of that wanting, or the very strongest point of that desire, or of that judgment, or of that anger. And you go right into the very middle of it, and you feel what's there. And often when you go to the very middle of it, you'll feel a knot of something else. It might be a knot of ang- uh, in the middle of anger, of pain, and of just hurt. Or it might be a knot of tension, or it might be a knot of fear, And then you go right into this, oh, where's the center of the fear? And you note fear, fear, and you just allow it. And then you try and feel the very strongest point in it. And if you keep going into the very center of it, not thinking or analyzing, but letting yourself rest in the very center, what you discover when you do it, either right away or through one or two layers of some certain other kinds of pain or difficulty, is a place where there's just space. Where you realize in the very center of it, There's pain. You say, "All right, what's in the center of that hurt or pain? You feel it and you go right into the very middle of the place where it hurts the most. And you find that there's a sense of space. Because you've come to complete rest with it. You're not in any struggle with it. And then it will dissolve of itself. And so those are two ways to work with the hindrances beyond simply paying attention to them as empty energies arising and passing. One is to abandon them and to come To learn how that inner strength by which the mind becomes greater purified, which the hindrances arise, but you don't get caught in their pattern, you really just let them go. And then the mind gets clearer and more concentrated and they don't arise as often. Or to work with them and go right through the very middle of them to find that sense of shunyata, of space, of emptiness, right in the very center of the strongest part of them. Does that make sense to you talking about these two ways? Are there questions that it brings up for you?
1: I was saying um that in the start and subject object I and H. So it is too much. Excuse
0: me? Yeah, there are a lot of ways. To, yeah, that's nice. There are a lot of ways to talk about emptiness. In fact, the the anger itself, and or the fear or the desire, or whatever it is, is empty anyway. It's just a, an impersonal energy, as is every aspect of experience. But there is this interesting thing that happens for people, and it happens. Only when you get somewhat concentrated, it's pretty hard when your attention's scattered, but when you have developed some degree of awareness and concentration, then things which you're kind of you're struggling with and it's difficult, if you say, All right, I'm gonna go right into the very middle of it, the place where it's the strongest, and feel just what's there, and then you feel the intensity of that, and you say, Well, I'll go right in the center of that, is that it somehow tends to open into space. And you can play with that yourself and see it's it's, uh, it's interesting when you have some power of awareness to, to do that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.